This morning, we have a difficult topic to talk through together. We're talking about the issue of gender. This sermon pairs with last week's sermon, uh, which was about biological sex. I will say that gender is the more complicated issue. Biological sex relates to biology, to anatomy, to physical things, stuff that feels a little more objective and tangible at times. Gender has to do with how we perceive ourselves, how we interact with others. It feels more subjective. It makes it more complicated. Gender is also an issue that I think more people, both Christians and non-Christians, are struggling with. And so it's an important topic for us to be able to talk through. But frankly speaking, I don't feel qualified to do that. So what we're going to do is pray and ask that God's spirit would be among us, teaching us and guiding us through his word. What we need is for God and his word to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we need God to do what only God can do, which is to provide grace and truth correction, protection, warmth, uh, understanding, and help in the midst of topics like this. So would you bow your, uh, bow your heads as I lead us in prayer? Jesus, you say, apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, I feel that this morning. Uh, Lord, I feel that most Sunday mornings. But God, uh, today, apart from you, Lord, we're just simply blowing hot air. We're just simply speaking words. But you promised, Jesus, through, through your death and resurrection that the forgiveness of our sins would allow your spirit to dwell in us. And so we pray, Jesus, you promised to send your spirit of truth to guide us in all truth and to help us to understand things. Jesus said you had more to teach us than we would be able to bear at that moment. Lord, we're ready to hear more teaching from you uh, Lord, the world has its opinions. We're grateful for things that we can learn and understand from this world, but we are not of this world. We are yours, and we belong to you. Would you not please be our shepherd? Guide us, direct us. You tell us to call upon your name, and so we are calling upon your name. You tell us to seek your face while you may be found. Here we are, Lord. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Guide us to still waters and into green pastures. Restore our souls. Do this for your glory's sake and because you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So gender, as I said, is a complicated topic. And anytime you're talking through complicated topics, it can be helpful to have a little roadmap for where you're going. These are the five things that I would like to cover with us today. They're on the screen here. We're going to begin by defining what is gender. We did talk about the difference between biological sex and gender last week, but this is hard. Gender is especially hard uh, to wrap our minds around. So we're going to go back through what is gender. Then we want to talk about what is gender dysphoria or incongruence when people are struggling with the issue of gender. What is that? What causes that? And then really the heart of what we're aiming for is in questions four and five. What does God have to say this morning to those who are struggling with the issue of gender? And then how do we as Christians respond to others who might be struggling 
in this area. So let's begin, and I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, the church provide, provides Bibles. We'd love for you to take one of those and turn to page 2. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and Genesis chapter 2 is very early on. In order to define gender and understand gender, we're going to look at the creation of gender. God creates gender, and it's narrated for us in Genesis chapter 2. Now, biological sex is also created in Genesis 2. We looked at that last week. Biological sex, just to remind you, can be used as synonymous with gender, but we're using them differently, and lots of people in culture today use them differently. Biological sex has to do with God forming Adam's body from the dust of the ground and giving to him male parts. He had a male biological sex. God did the same for Eve, forming her from the rib he took from Adam and gave to her a biological sex of female. She had a female body. That's narrated for us in Genesis 2, but in addition to the creation of biological sex in Genesis 2, we also see the creation of gender. Gender, we said last week, and we're going to explain it more this week, has less to do with our anatomy and more to do with the subjective sense of how we view ourselves, how the maleness or the femaleness, masculinity, femininity, how those things play themselves out. The creation of gender happens in verses 23 and 24. Let's look at those together. After God fashions and forms Adam and Eve and creates Adam biologically male and Eve biologically female, it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And look why he names her woman. For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. In verse 23, we have not biological sex emphasized, but gender. Notice how Adam names Eve. He calls her woman. This word woman is not related to any part of her anatomy. The word woman is not related to the word for mammary glands or the word for uterus. He is not naming Eve or woman on the basis of her biological sex. He is naming her on the basis that she came from him. That there is a relationship between men and women and so she is named with regards to gender. The difference between biological sex and gender is probably even more clear in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is not a command about marriage. It's a description about how marriage often works. In some societies today, we have something similar. The sort of proverb or gnomic truth, which is a son is a son until he takes a wife 
A daughter is a daughter all her life. That's sort of the idea that's going on here is, is that it says of the man, Adam, who is a biological male, that he would be experiencing the gendered role of husband. And that in that gendered role of husband, he would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The idea here is, is that husbands do this not on the basis of male anatomy. There's nothing about biological sex of being male that causes a man to leave his father and mother. It's not because a man can grow a beard or because a man has a certain kind of musculature. That's not the reason a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. It has to do with gender. It has to do with the role that the man or the husband is playing. That oftentimes in society, even described here, as a husband plays his role as a husband, he draws closer to his wife and that introduces some distance with his parents. This is about gender. It's not about biology. Does that make sense? So when we talk about gender, we're talking about a subjective sense of who you are. God created humans biologically male and biologically female. Gender is that part of ourselves where we come to understand what it means to be male or what it means to be female, as well as how we play that out in society and culture at large. It's more subjective because it has to do with our sense of self. It doesn't mean it's not real. It just means it can be less tangible than biological sex. But here we have gender created, Genesis 2. And before we go any further, we want to praise God for gender. This is part of creation. This is before the fall. Gender is not something that God introduces after the fall. This is a good part of his creation that he introduces for our blessing. The ability not only to be biologically male or biologically female, but to know and to experience and to be able to relate to others and be able to process how it is that we are male or female. Masculinity and femininity and how those things work together. This is a gift from God. Animals have biological sex, but they don't have gender. They have male or female body parts, but they have no self-awareness of their maleness or their femaleness. They have no way to engage with one another and to be able to process and work out what does it mean to be biologically male and what does it mean to be biologically female. God has given that to us. And it's a gift. And we praise him for it. One last thing before we leave gender Gender develops within relationships. Now, I want to be very careful that you understand what I'm saying. Adam and Eve were created biologically male and female, and there is a corresponding gender that God gives to them that goes with being biologically male or biologically female. However, the development of that sense of what it means to be male or female and how it feels and how it plays itself out 
happens in relationship. If there was no Eve, Adam would still be biologically male. But he would not have the gendered role of husband. You can't have a husband without a wife. It's a gendered role. It's formed and fashioned in relationship. Likewise, if there was no Adam, Eve would still be biologically female. But her understanding of femininity, for example, wouldn't exist because there was no masculinity to compare it to. So biological sex is more objective in that sense. Gender is just as real. And it's given to us by God in connection with our biological sex. But the development, the formation, the creation, how it all works itself out, this happens relationally in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. That's number one, what is gender? Number two, what is this phrase gender dysphoria or incongruence? Well, I said gender is a gift from God. It's part of the creation that he gave to us. It's a blessing and we ought to be thankful for it. But after Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, it becomes crystal clear that even the very best parts of creation can be areas in which humans struggle or experience difficulty, and gender is no exception. A name that is given to struggles related to gender is the term gender dysphoria or incongruence. And what it is, is when there is a mismatch between your biological sex and your internal sense of self. For example, someone who is born biologically male may internally feel as if they are a female. That is gender dysphoria. There's incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of gender. Or another example, someone who is born biologically female may feel neither male nor female, but something else. That's gender dysphoria. There is a conflict between someone's biological sex and their internal sense of who they are and the role that they play in society and relationships. <clears throat> now some may feel that gender dysphoria is a sort of modern creation. This is a brand new thing that's been foisted upon us because we, as opposed to all other humans who ever lived, we have completely rebelled against God. The truth of the matter is, although gender dysphoria is a modern sort of description for it, this is a very ancient issue. This has been around for a long, long time, the struggle in the mismatch between biological sex and internal sense of self. For example, in the ancient Roman cult of Cybel, the Galli priests were men, this is ancient Greek and Roman, uh, castrated themselves dressed in feminine clothes and wanted to be referred to using feminine pronouns. Philo, who's a contemporary of Jesus, means he lives at the same time Jesus does. In his writings, he has multiple places where he is describing what today we would call a transgendered person. 
in India. There are groups with very ancient roots, the Hijra, who also would be what we would call today transgendered. Likewise, in Thailand, the Katoi, same thing. This has been around for a long, long time, and it is an op a recognition that gender dysphoria is not a new creation. It's not a new thing. That humans, for as long as we can tell, some humans have struggled with the relationship between their biological sex and their internal sense of self. And so let me say up front that gender dysphoria is a very real thing. It's a very real thing. It may feel more subjective, but that doesn't make it any less real. That many humans struggle with the congruence between their biological sex and their sense of self. That's true today, and it's been true as far back in history as we can tell. Let me also say <clears throat> that if you've not experienced gender dysphoria, if that's not your struggle, perhaps you might be able to empathize or understand by realizing there are lots of ways that humans struggle between our physical bodies and our internal sense of self. For example, there may be some here who are single, but their body feels like it should be married. There may be some here who in their minds think of themselves as being vastly overweight when in reality their physical body is extremely underweight. There can be some uh, here today who feel uh, that they're in their mind that they are either sick or that they're extremely prone to become sick when in reality their physical body is extremely healthy. These are just some of the many ways that we as humans struggle between what might be true of our body and how we process that internally. Gender dysphoria is one of those things. There is a mismatch between biological sex and an internal representation or presentation or understanding of who we are. In all these things, we recognize there's a struggle. It's difficult. Which leads us to number three. What causes gender dysphoria? There are four things I think that could be contributing factors. And by the way, these are contributing factors not just to gender dysphoria. Uh, they can be similar contributing factors to any ways in which there's a mismatch between what's going on in our physical body and our perceptions of who we are internally in our soul or self. The four I have are specific probably towards gender dysphoria, but I think they're relevant in lots of cases. The first is deception and spiritual warfare. In the very next chapter of Genesis, Satan is going to come to Adam and Eve and deceive them into thinking that if they just had something different in life than they've been assigned by God, they would feel more fulfilled. 
they would be more true to what they were created to be. And that when he comes to them, he lies to them and says to them, if you really were to embrace being human, you would have these things that God is not giving to you. The same deception still happens with gender today. That somehow there's something different. If there could be something different than what I'm experiencing right now, I would experience peace and fulfillment. And so one of the possible contributing factors is deception or spiritual warfare. A second contributing factor can be societal norms. Gender dysphoria happens when there is a conflict between your perceived sense of what it means to be a man and your biological sex, or your perceived sense of what it means to be feminine or to be a female, or your perceived sense of how this works itself out. One of the problems is, is society has its own gender stereotypes. And if a person doesn't fit into those gender stereotypes of things that are typically male or typically female, they can feel a dysphoria, a disconnect between their biological sex and what the society around them is saying, how that ought to work itself out. Now this is especially tragic when societies have gender stereotypes that are not biblical. For example, in the Bible, one of the ways that the gendered male role plays itself out is in men who write poetry, who sing music, in men who write stories. In our culture today, that is not often thought of as typically male. Instead, we think of things like sports or guns or being stoic in your emotions. But that, according to the Bible, that's not what makes somebody a man. That is not masculine behavior that the sort of manliest of men we have in the Bible are doing things like weeping, singing, writing poetry, engaging in these kinds of things. Likewise, our culture today will often tell women that if you're not concerned about hair, or makeup, or jewelry, or dresses that may be your transgender. When in reality, 1 Peter 3 commends women who are not obsessed with hair, or makeup, or jewelry, or clothing. But because we live in a culture, one of the causes for gender dysphoria is if this is what you think it means to be a man or this is what you think it means to be a female and you don't fit within those gender stereotypes, you can feel a disconnect between your biological sex and how that gender works itself out in your life and in society and in relationships. A third possible cause are our own internal desires. It's what the Bible sometimes calls the flesh. It means that all of us who are born in a fallen world have some innate desires that we're born with that are contrary or want us to behave <clears throat> contrary to what God wants for us. People can be born with a desire for same-sex attraction. 
People can be born with a predisposition towards alcohol addiction. People can be born with the cravings and desires for an unhealthy uh, uh, addiction to sex. Simply being born human is what Ephesians calls, we all struggle with the desires, the thoughts, the cravings of the flesh, and they war against our soul. Some people are born with the struggle of gender dysphoria. That somehow inherent in who they are is a struggle between their biological sex and perhaps what they wish their biological sex was or how it would play itself out in their life. A fourth possible contributing cause to where gender dysphoria comes from is it can come from wounds of sins done to us or things that we've done to ourselves. When Philo talks about people who are transgendered in the cases that he talks about them, those cases, he says, is was a result of sexual abuse. That was not just true back then, it can be true today. Somebody who is treated that way, can that can be confusing for how gender works itself out. Sexual immorality in general can also create confusion about gender because intercourse and gender are so closely connected. Legalism can also create confusion about gender just simply from the way that legalism works itself out in our lives as a sin. And so wounds that we experience from the sins of others or that we ourselves inflict upon our, ourselves can cause struggles with the issue of gender. So there's at least, in my mind, four different ways that someone might get to the point of experiencing gender dysphoria. There can be multiple ones in any particular case. What's extremely important is that we're not supposed to try to diagnose why someone else may be experiencing issues with gender. We're just simply supposed to acknowledge there are lots and lots of ways that human beings can experience a disconnect between their physical bodies and their souls or their internal sense of self. So to summarize, gender dysphoria is a very real struggle that people have. Let me also say, if I haven't been clear yet, that struggling with gender is not a sin. That struggling with, I wish that something was different, fighting against or feeling a disconnect with your biological self, that itself is not a sin. There are multiple contributing factors or multiple causes as to how a person could get into that position. But please understand, this is a very real thing that people are struggling with and dealing with. And a reality that God uh, has something to say about. So with that, we want to move to the most important part of the sermon, which is the final two questions. What does God say to someone who is struggling with gender dysphoria? What's the message of God to you today? Well, it's a message of good news. Now, good news sometimes starts with bad news, and this is the case here as well. The bad news is in Isaiah 45. God says, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. 
Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? God is the potter and we are the clay. At birth, God assigns to each of us a biological sex and there is a gender that goes with that biological sex. But in the face of the fact that some of us tend to want to reject God and his creator and his ability to bless us, God shares this message of good news from Ephesians 2. All of us, every single person in this room, whether you struggle with gender dysphoria or another particular struggle, all of us lived in this world at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. <clears throat> and to those who are following the desires and the thoughts of your flesh, of your soul that wants perhaps to have a different gender or for it to work itself out differently, listen to what God says. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. What is God's message to anyone who is struggling with gender dysphoria or any other way in which our flesh has cravings or desires or thoughts? His message is mercy, life. That he doesn't treat us how we deserve. We do, we all deserve woe. Because all of us, everyone in different ways have said to our creator, why did you make me this way? Every one of us have said back to God, I don't like this about my life. I don't like the way this works itself out. And God's response to us is, I love you. I want to rescue you. I want to bless you. I want to transform you. I want to give you freedom from the slavery that your own self is inflicting upon you. And to those who are struggling with the very real struggle of gender dysphoria, God's message is, I love you. I want to transform you. I want to bless you. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. He also has a further part of this message for those who are struggling with gender dysphoria as Christians. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean these kinds of struggles go away. And in addition to Ephesians 2, God offers a special invitation to Christians who feel still that mismatch between their biological sex and their internal sense of self. And it's an invitation that we looked at last week from Matthew 19. And the invitation from Jesus is to live now in a way where gender is not the primary identifying feature of your life. And the example is Jesus. Jesus is biologically male. Jesus' gender is he thinks of himself as being male. 
But in addition to turning over the tables in the temple that we might think is typically male activity, Jesus is also the one who weeps when his close friend dies. Jesus is the one who loves being around children. Jesus is the one who describes himself as a mother hen gathering people under her wings. Jesus is single. He is not married. He has opted out of the gendered roles of marriage and biological parenting because he is committed to the kingdom of God. And what Jesus invites you today, perhaps your gender dysphoria as a Christian is an invitation from God to live where gender is not the defining feature. Your service in the kingdom of God is. Perhaps God has allowed this struggle in your life because he is calling you to something greater and deeper than what gendered stereotypes and roles can offer to you. And he's inviting you for the sake of the kingdom of God to embrace him and the fact that he wants to give you a name and a memorial better than biological children. He wants to give to you joy and fulfillment and he's allowed this struggle so that you might hear the call, come with me, come be like Jesus. Come and live in a world where gender is not the primary defining feature of your life. Your status as a servant of the King of Kings is. Number five, how should we as Christians respond to others with regards to this very real issue of gender? I got five things, so lots of lists today. Five of this, four of that, three of this. It's because it's a complex topic and I can't keep it straight in my own mind unless I list it out. Five ways that we as Christians should respond to those who might be struggling with the issue of gender. Number one, and this should be our response to all people who struggle with gender. Mercy. We of all people should know the deceptions of Satan, the enslaving power of sin. We as Christians should understand that there are times we want to make our bodies do things. We want to make our souls feel a certain way. We want to get our minds to think about things a certain way. And we simply aren't able to because we of all people should understand the sin, Satan, deception, confusion, the fallen world, genetics. How this all works itself out is hard. It's confusing. And that any person who is struggling with a mismatch between their biological sex and their internal sense of self deserves mercy. Second, how should we respond to Christians who are exploring, struggling, trying to work this out in their own life? We should respond with patience, and with prayer. The Lord is at work. It's not wrong to struggle. We all struggle in different ways trying to figure out how to get our bodies and our souls to be a whole, to be united. 
And for those who are trying to figure this thing out, patience and prayer. And remember, gender is fashioned in community. And the more you and I can help someone who is struggling with this commune with God and commune with the people of faith, the easier it will be for them to be able to experience and to see God and God's love in the midst of this. Which means we as a church should do our best to not let cultural gender stereotypes drive what happens here, but simply God's word. There are lots of gendered things in the Bible. We don't have time to look at them all this morning, but there are lots of passages but many of the things that we might be tempted to embrace as gendered roles simply aren't according to the scriptures. A biological male who loves musical theater should be celebrated for being a manly person in the church because he looks a lot like King David. A biological male who is in touch with his feelings looks a lot like Jesus. That should be celebrated. Biological females who like to hunt and fish. That should be celebrated as being feminine because we have lots of examples in the Bible of women who are doing what our culture would consider to be masculine activity. But God says, no, that's not masculine or feminine. And we as a church should be embracing as much as possible the things that the Bible says and not what our culture says. Which means we should encourage men to be part of the prayer shawl ministry at Calvary Church. We should encourage women to serve in the parking lot and in other ministries. And if we're a community where the gendered roles of the Bible are more prevalent instead of the gendered roles of culture, this can help people who are feeling confusion as they try to work this out. Three, how do we respond to Christians who are no longer struggling with the issue of gender, but have simply hardened their heart and decided, I'm doing what I'm doing whether you like it or not? the kindest thing that we could do for them, Christians, is to warn them that the wages of sin is always death. That choosing to reject God, to not submit to who he is, to not submit to the struggle, to not embrace what's going on, to not be willing to go with this, to not respond to the invitation, all that does is bring heartache and pain. And the kindest thing you can do is in love, warn them. Fourth, how should Christian respond, Christians respond to non-Christians who are struggling with this? With the humility of the gospel. We would not expect non-Christians to understand these things. Apart from the spirit, it's not possible. We could not and should not expect non-Christians to be transformed as if they had the Spirit living in them. If somebody says, do I have to submit to certain gendered kind of things if I want to become a Christian? The answer is no. Now we can tell them, in full disclosure, 
if you do submit to Jesus, you're going to find that his spirit is going to start to make some changes in your life. But the message to non-Christians is God loves you. And God wants to transform your life. We are not asking for transformation before Jesus, but transformation through Jesus. And so whatever their struggle may be with gender, that's just not really the issue. The issue is, is that all of us struggle with how our biology and our internal self work themselves out. And Jesus came to give us life. Not to eliminate all struggles, but to help us in the midst of those struggles. To follow in his footsteps and to submit to God our Father. And then fifth, how do we respond to a society that seems to be unmoored from sort of biblical teachings or thoughts about gender? We respond by sticking with Jesus. In John 6, Jesus teaches some things that are culturally unacceptable, unpopular, and strongly disliked. Most of the people who had been following Jesus up to that point say, no thank you. I don't want anything more to do with this. If that's the kind of stuff you're going to say, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to be part of somebody or something that says those kinds of things that are culturally unacceptable. And you can hear the very hurt in Jesus' human voice as he turns to his 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter replies, where would we go? You have the words of life. The stuff I have told you this morning, the culture finds ludicrous. Foolish. Nonsensical. But my encouragement to you is stick with Jesus. His words are kind. They're true. They're full of mercy and grace. But he is Lord and we are not. And I'm sticking with him. And my encouragement to you is to do the same. Now there's lots more stuff about how this works itself out practically. There's lots more thoughts about how do you talk to people in this? How do you address people? How do we work about this? How does this work at work? How does this work with family members? What if you've got a cousin who's struggling with this? There's more than we could possibly cover on a Sunday morning. So my encouragement to you is please make use of the resources that we talked about at the beginning of the service. The Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, our own Calvary Care Department, other godly men and women in this church and other churches who are working through and thinking through these things. The Lord has provided great resources. Let me encourage you to make use of those. And then as we close out these two weeks on biological sex and gender, let me leave you with this final thought from 1 Peter 4. In the midst of the struggle and the difficulty and the confusion, when it feels like culture and society is going to overwhelm the church, Remember that Jesus says those who stick with him overcome the world. And 1 Peter 4 says, in the midst of the difficulty of the whole thing, whether you're struggling with gender dysphoria or you're struggling about the idea of gender dysphoria, that each one of us who are Christians 
should commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good wherever and whenever we can. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we said at the beginning, who is competent for the tasks of talking through these issues? Only by your spirit can we understand and think about these things rightly. Satan wants to get us coming and going. He wants to get us in harshness about this issue or he wants to get us in absolute license and freedom to do whatever we feel like doing. Jesus, show us how to walk the middle road. Show us how to walk in grace and truth, in truth and grace. Jesus, for those who are struggling here with their biological sex and a mismatch with how they feel internally, please would you let them know there's not something wrong with them, but that you see them in the midst of the struggle and that you love them and that you want to help them. For any Christians who've given up that struggle and have begun to harden their hearts, Jesus, it's not too late. Call them to repentance. Call them to worship. Call them back to you. For all of us, as we have to try to figure out how to do this with family and friends and schools and culture and rules and all those things, let us walk not by law, but by faith. Let us be led by your spirit. Let us stick with you no matter what. And let us believe your words are life. Not judgment, not heresy, not confusion, but life. Thank you, Jesus, for words of life today. Amen.